Today, we are in week number two of our sermon series on worldview. Worldview, and as we saw last week, everyone has a worldview. In fact, uh, great authors have likened it to a pair of glasses through which we see the world. The issue is, what's our prescription? Is it the prescription of the world itself, which is broken by sin and death and pain? Or do we have the biblical worldview, God's worldview? Let's take a look at another video today. Now, of course, the thing about worldview is everybody has one. It's really tough to put people in categories, but you can kind of put their ideas in categories. For example, one idea leads to another. If you believe that the universe is kind of a gigantic cosmic accident, there's nothing spiritual about it, it's just a physical place of cause and effect, of natural causes and processes, then that's going to affect how you think about the human person. That's going to affect whether you think a human person is spiritual, whether there's anything metaphysical about them. It also affects human value. Because if there's nothing to us but our physical selves, then there's nothing inherent about us to give us value. Value has to be stowed from the outside. And that means somebody is always calling someone else less than. And that's what we've seen throughout history. Uh, and, and so you see how these ideas have consequences. And so what you can do is actually see, based on what people think about God or truth, you can kind of see where their other beliefs are going to tend to fall down. Now, one of the hardest things is communicating to someone across worldview lines. A lot of times as Christians, we're ready to give answers. You know, someone says, how can you believe this? And we're ready to give answers. I think Christians should learn from two of the great educators in history, Socrates and Jesus. They weren't great answer givers. They were much better question askers. People would come to Jesus with a question. He'd ask a better question. And I think Christians can actually learn to have wonderful conversations about things that matter, even with people we disagree, if we learn some basic questions. One question is, how do you know that's true? That's a really important question. When someone says something like, well, I don't think anyone knows the truth. Why do you know that's true? And what you're doing is creating dialogue and making someone kind of defend this belief that's really important in their life, but maybe they never really have thought through. Another question is, what do you mean by that? That might be the most important question because definitions really matter. The battle really for our hearts and minds and the battle for a society is really over how we define words like truth and love and freedom and human value and sexuality and family and marriage. All these questions are based on definitions, and these definitions, whichever ones we settle on, come from our worldview. So I once had a lady tell me, how can you believe in God? And I said, well, what do you mean by God? And she said, a grumpy old man with a beard in the sky who can't wait for you to do something wrong so he can strike you with a lightning bolt. And I thought, well, I don't believe in that God. And instead of defending a God that was based on her misperception, we were able to have a conversation just because I was able to stop and go, wait a minute, where did you get that idea of God? And we were able to have a dialogue. A third question is, what if you're wrong? You know, I often hear people say, well, I don't think Jesus would send anyone to hell. Jesus was a loving, caring person. Well, of course he was, but what if you're wrong? And how do you know that's true? And see how these questions can actually make someone defend their ideas. And a very important question to ask is, when did you come to that conclusion? See, people don't just believe things out of a vacuum. Beliefs are often tied to stories. Once had an atheist tell me that the reason she was an older woman, I asked, when did she stop believing in God? And she said that when she was very little, her oldest memory, she was in her 90s at the time, her her oldest memory was visiting her relatives in Poland who were Jewish. And you might guess the rest of the story. They became victims of the Holocaust. And so really her 
disbelief in God came out of a personal story that had to do with people that she loved. And we have to understand that beliefs aren't just esoteric things that exist in people's heads. We often say beliefs have feet. They live life with us. And if you can get to that story, you can often get to someone's worldview in a way that's really helpful. And you can have a, a conversation and maybe even point them to truth. Great second video that we see here based upon worldview. And again, as you saw the little tag there at the bottom of the screen, these videos are on right now. Media, again, as I mentioned during our announcement period, that we all as a church body have a subscription to. If you're not yet signed up, contact the office. This video and more uh, related to worldview and many other things about maturing in our relationship with Christ. But today, as we kind of hit our second sermon setting up the rest of the series about worldview. Last, last week, we defined what is a worldview. This week, we're going to look specifically at a biblical worldview, some highlights of what it means to have a biblical worldview. And of course, as we continue on through this sermon series, then we're going to look at specific topics, related hot topics in our world today. And what does the Bible, what is God's worldview, which is synonymous with the biblical worldview, because of course we know the Bible to be the word of God, which we'll talk about a little bit today. What does God say about these issues of which we're dealing with in our world? And the story is told of a, of, a, uh, of a minister named Marilyn Sewell, and she was a self-professed uh, liberal minister of a self-professed liberal denomination. And she was having a conversation, an interview, in fact, with Christopher Hitchens, who is the uh, well-known and very outspoken atheist uh, before his passing. And she, almost to garner, you could see throughout the course of this uh, interview, she was almost trying to garner respect from Christopher Hitchens, the again outspoken atheist, by saying, you know, I am a minister uh, in, a, in a Christian church, a church that is of the Christian tradition. But I really don't believe in any of the tenets of the Bible. I don't believe in the resurrection, the birth of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the atonement of Christ. I don't believe in the resurrection. And basically saying, you know, I just kind of believe in it. This would be in my paraphrase. Believe in it for tradition, and I believe in it for uh, the good that comes out and, and, and some of the good teachings of Jesus Christ. And we know that uh, Christopher Hitchens, obviously from a biblical worldview, was quite off base with his worldview. He did not even believe in God, of course, an outspoken atheist. But even so, he framed it very, very well here. He said, well, I, don't, I would say, this is in the midst of this uh, interview, he said, well, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven... You, you're really not, in any meaningful sense, a Christian. He framed that, an atheist framed it just perfectly. Because his point was, behind that, why in the world are you adhering to this thought? Why are you adhering to this worldview if you don't believe in the very tenets of what Christ himself taught? So here's the thing. When we look at Scripture, when we look at the biblical worldview, which again is God's worldview, take a look at this on the screen and write it down. We study scripture because it tells the truth about God, the world, and man's relationship to God and the world. This is a quote from David Noble, uh, founder of, uh, of a ministry called Summit Ministries, which is a great ministry that for years and decades has been training Christians to understand the biblical worldview and the rest of the worldviews of the world. So again, it says, we study scripture because it tells the truth about God, the world, and man's relationship 
to God and the world. So let's turn here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and following. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and following. So this is, of course, Peter that's writing. And he says, uh, speaking out towards the critics and the false teachers of his day, but think how true these words ring even in the 21st century. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were there, he says. We weren't making this up. We were there. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is speaking of the transfiguration, which we will read in just a few moments. That voice came from the excellent glory and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word, verse 19, so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So as we'll walk through this passage today, it kind of breaks down into three parts. We're going to put those up on the screen as we get to them. But each one of these sections, which we'll have a little title for each one of these sections, the first one really deals with what we will call apologetics. And you may have heard that word before if you've been in church circles for any length of time. And this is a word that simply means, it doesn't mean we're kind of, you know, uh, sheepishly apologizing for what we believe. No, it means to defend the faith, to defend the faith, giving reason and, and, and good answers from, from the Bible and from the world of what we believe. So the first one is going to deal with apologetics. The second is going to look at worldview specifically. How does what Peter says here deal with and speak to the biblical worldview and how it looks at the world? Then, of course, we're going to see again it is trusted guidance. We have the trusted guidance of the Holy Spirit who illuminates the word, the word, the same one who illuminated and gave the scriptures to those who write, wrote them down, gives us trusted guidance in our day. Lord, as we, um, as we come to this passage today, and as we continue through this sermon series, Lord, help us to see the truth of your word and your worldview. God, from the beginning of the church in the first century, we know worldviews have been at odds. Your worldview, the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, and the worldview, of course, at the world at large, culture at large. And Lord, we know that the worldview of culture at large is infected by sin, as we all have been infected by sin. But Lord, in your grace, you have saved us through the person of Jesus Christ. Your son, Jesus Christ, has saved us and given us a new nature. And Lord, we, through the reading of your word and through obedience, are renewing our mind, as you tell us in the book of Romans. But God, help us to look at our world not as adversaries. But Lord, help us to look at the world as people just like us before we came to faith in Christ. Those that are lost and hopeless in, in trying to navigate a broken world. God, may our hearts be broken for them so that we might reach out with the truth of your word and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. 
The very first thing that we're going to see is they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This was almost apologetics light for Peter as he was writing to those that would deny what he was writing about and what he lived for in this truth of Jesus Christ. They would deny the message, the gospel, the life of Jesus Christ. And he was defending that. First of all, he said, we, don't, we didn't come to you with cunningly devised fables. These were not fables at all. This was a direct shot and a direct defense at his critics and the false teachers. But he spoke of the fact that this is, this person of Jesus Christ, this was not a cunningly devised fable. This was not something we made up. When we think about the heart of with the lost world, when they will try to probe at um, the message of Christ and the message of Christianity, one of the things that they try to label fable is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's just take that one alone. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. They will say, well, there, uh, Jesus Christ died, but he did not rise again. It was all a myth based upon maybe the swoon theory. Maybe we've heard of that. Maybe you've heard of the swoon theory that Jesus Christ was buried, but yet he truly wasn't dead. He, he was in a state of shock and coma, and he was buried in a cool tomb in which he was revived or something very similar to that. That's one of the popular uh, descriptions of the lost world of saying this must not have happened. What are some of the defenses against that sort of thinking. One is, he was executed by a Roman executioner. These men were experts in killing people. That sounds really graphic and really blunt, but it's the absolute truth. They were expert executioners. They knew when someone was dead. Not only that, but when we think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul himself wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says that the risen Lord was viewed by over 500 people 500 people, and remember, he's not writing this centuries later. He's writing this within a few decades of, the, of, the, of Jesus Christ, of, of his resurrection. So many of these 500 people were still alive. He's essentially saying, go take a look and ask them. Ask them. There are eyewitnesses that are still alive. Transformation of the disciples. Peter himself was absolutely transformed from a bombastic fly off the handle, and then when it was time to put up or shut up, he shrunk back from, 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 uh, and denied Jesus Christ three times. He was changed from that to a bold witness for Jesus, and so were the other followers of Jesus Christ, the other disciples. Transformation overnight. In fact, there was immediate bold proclamation. It wasn't, again, that, okay, several years later, once the persecution dies down, then they began to talk about, hey, we follow this guy, Jesus Christ, and he was God on earth, and they hoped to gather a following from it. There was immediate, bold proclamation, even in the face of great persecution. They boldly proclaimed Jesus Christ. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was converted after he was a skeptic, and Paul himself went from a great persecutor of the faith to one of its greatest preachers and proclaimers, and many, many other things. Just that alone. Think about this also, the resurrection. Not only the resurrection, but also when we take one of the other major issues, take only one or two of a great list of issues of which the biblical worldview defends. What about the origin of our world? What about the origin of our world, the explanation of, of our world and its origin? The Bible has the greatest explanation, not only for the origin of our world, but the greatest explanation for the world and its brokenness. That no, no, uh, as opposed to the common tropes of our society, man is not basically good, but we are basically bad, infected by sin, and we're in need of a Savior. But also the origin of the world itself. 
Romans chapter 1, which we looked at last week. Flip with me again if you have that in your Bible. Flip with me there or you can listen along. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his, that is God's, invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal eternal power and Godhead, so that they, that is the world, are without excuse. People can't say, well, I didn't know there was a God. I didn't know there was a God. They're surprised one day when they stand before him. I didn't know there was a God. He said there's plenty of evidence in our world. Just look at the world around you. You have to do logical backbends to think that all of this world and its incredible complexity just happened by natural chance. He says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Although you can look around and there's an inkling within the heart and mind of mankind that there must be something beyond just the natural world, they denied it. They denied it. And they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, dug a deeper and deeper hole, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Remember, we talked about this last week. Foolishness in the Bible isn't ignorance. It is willful. It is willful uh, uh, putting aside, and it's willful disobedience. That's what foolishness is in the Bible. Professing to be wise, they became fools. What he's saying there is essentially there is plenty of evidence in our world around us to look at this. If we look at it with honesty and say, it doesn't matter how many billions of years you add, time plus matter plus chance cannot equal this world in all of its great complexity. In fact, the National Academy of Sciences, just one organization, they say they, in their purpose statement, it says that they seek naturalistic explanations for the phenomenon, the data within the framework of natural laws and principles. So when they're looking at the world, again, it says they are seeking naturalistic exp- explanations for the phenomenon that they can, they can observe in our world. So here's the thing. Even an organization like that is not starting with observation. They're not starting with sort of basic objective observation and saying, we are going to observe the data and see what it bears out. We're not going to just observe with, with no preconceived notions, and we're going to see what the data bears out. We're not going to look at our world and say, gosh, it is so complex, there must be a designer. There's no way that you could, you could see a tornado making its way through a junkyard and leaving a 747 in its wake. That is the level of complexity we're talking about. That's the level of complexity. But what happens is they assume within their own purpose statement, they make the assumption that all can be explained by natural laws. You know what that is when you make an assumption about a belief? That actually is by the Merriam-Webster definition of naturalism. That's what it is, by the way, when you assume, when you assume that all things can be explained by natural phenomenon, that is naturalism. That's naturalism. And you know what a Merriam-Webster dictionary defines naturalism is, is a doctrine. They actually define it as a doctrine. Now, here's where the circular reasoning comes in to this National Academy. They say within their own sort of a fuller explanation of their purposes that they believe that no beliefs, no observations should be based upon doctrine. Now, here's the thing. They're speaking, of course, of religious doctrine all the while having a blind spot of their own that they have their own doctrine saying that we're not going to start with observation. We're going to start by observing with the assumption that everything comes by a completely natural explanation. And see, what you're seeing, and what you're seeing is an incredible 
movement within the science, the sciences that many people, and this has been happening for centuries, uh, really, that many science, uh, scientists that even begin to study with openness and open mind uh, the world around them, and they observe not with preconceived notions, begin to come around to the fact that there's got to be more to this. It is too complicated to not have some sort of a design. Harvard's Richard Lewinton says this, we take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. Now, this is not all of science. He's speaking of naturalism, of course. For we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. He says, in spite of patent absurdity of some of its constructs. For we cannot allow a a divine foot in the door. Paul Amos Moody, a uh, famous uh, evolutionist. In fact, he wrote a book uh, called The Introduction to Evolution. As he went further and further in his life, his mind began to open to what he would see around him. And he says, the world has a definite design. Think about how he changed from writing the book, Introduction to Evolution, to this statement. The world has a definite design, and a design suggests a designer. And you can see this over and over and over again with those who courageously, and let me tell you what, it takes courage, courage to break ranks. They've broken ranks, and they've said, you know, we look at this world, and they might not come to the Judeo-Christian understanding of who God is, but they say, okay, this is too complex, too complex for just to happen by chance. So eyewitnesses of his majesty, and he says as it continues on there, when we made known to you, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for we did not follow these cunningly devised fables, but he said we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What does he speak of uh, specifically? Well, as you continue into verse 17, he says, For we received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory from the heavens. And that voice said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This speaks of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 17 and other reports in the Gospels, this is where the selection of the followers of Jesus Christ were with him upon the mountain, and he showed them, he revealed to them his full glory. Verse verse 1 of chapter 17 of Matthew says this, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured, meaning it was almost like a peeling back appealing back of the layers of of his humanity to reveal his full glory and his deity. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said, he's like almost, I don't know what to do. Lord, is it good for me to be here? If you wish, let me make three tabernacles. Let me make three dwelling places, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It says in verse 5, And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came down out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Hear him, this transfiguration. Can you imagine going to a Little League baseball game, and uh, there in the Little League baseball game, someone like Clayton Kershaw walks up, one of the best pitchers in the major leagues today, Clayton Kershaw has a kid that plays in this little league. Maybe it's, uh, you know, second graders, first graders, second graders, whatever it is. And and, uh, Clayton Kershaw walks up to the mound there, and he throws a 100-mile-an-hour fastball right across the plate. 
Could you imagine that from the perspective of a child? He'd been throwing little lobs, you know, throwing little lobs, throwing little lobs, maybe throw some underhand, and then all of a sudden he rears back and he throws a heater right across the plate. This is exactly what Jesus did right here. Jesus pulled back his humanity and he revealed his glory, who he truly was. He was the son of God on earth. And Peter says, we saw that. You cannot, false teachers, tell me, he says, false teachers of his day, tell me that what we give witness to was not real. We saw it. It was a preview, in fact, of the second coming of Jesus Christ, his second coming in all of his glory. And Peter proved everything wrong. He says, all of it. He says, I prove it. When you say it's a myth, I prove that wrong because I saw the glory of Jesus Christ. They saw that Jesus Christ was the glorious God of heaven, and it was God the Father. It was confirming that preexistent glory of Jesus Christ. In verse 18, it says, And we heard this voice that came from heaven, and when we were with him on that holy mountain, Peter again is saying, This is not legend. This was the very voice of God that said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Peter is again, This is not myth. This is not legend. Tim Keller, the great thinker of, uh, of our day, a great Christian thinker of our day, compares the written accounts of the life and, and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to what some might claim as a legend. He says it could not be a legend. Legends are written down long after the events, right? They grow out of years and years of them just being recycled like a game of a societal game of telephone that plays out over years and years and centuries. Legends were written down long after the events, but we see some of the greatest proof of the historicity of Scripture. When we did a similar study a couple of years ago, we walked through the historicity of Scripture, meaning compared to other ancient documents of his day, which historians just take as truth and facts, say some of the great ancient writings of Rome when they're looking at history, the Bible blows them away on the scale of historicity, meaning there are far more copies of wonderful quality that are preserved, written as clo- much closer to the events when you look at the Bible than any of the great writings of, of history, and Roman history especially. But yet when we look at some of those Roman uh, histories and accounts of Roman history, no one questions those things. But the Bible absolutely blows them away with their historical accuracy and fidelity. Leg- legends are written down long after events. Legends uh, could not be contradicted by the living, but we saw, we talked about that already in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There were many people that if they were telling a lie, that could have contradicted what they said. And here's the thing as well. They were dying. Peter and the other disciples, they were dying. Would you think they'd die and they'd be persecuted, dying terrible, horrible, torturous deaths in many cases for something they knew to be a lie? You know, maybe somebody could propagate a lie. Maybe someone could say, you know, what's our gain in this? Maybe we gain power. Maybe we could somehow gain a following, and then somehow we could parlay that into some sort of financial standing. You could see that. I mean, that's happened throughout history. But as soon as the persecution of the heat is on, as soon as their lives are threatened, as soon as they are being tortured, they would recant of what they knew as a lie. But they never did. They never did. It is not a legend. That very first thing that we saw, of course, was eyewitnesses of his majesty. But the second thing that we see is a light in the dark place. This is the section here of our passage today that speaks specifically of what does the biblical worldview mean for our day. 
Verses 19, verse 19 by itself says this, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. He says again, based upon that and many other reasons he could give, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed that, that shines as a light in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He had confidence in the scripture. And he said that this scripture this, this word, the prophetic word, and again, we see the, 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 the words of one apostle being confirmed by another as their belief under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this was also just like the Old Testament, the prophetic word of God. And they had confidence in that. And he says, which you do well to, to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. The truth of the word is like a light that reveals and exposes darkness. You know, as opposed to some of the, the common the thoughts and tropes of our world that we've heard, Christianity throughout its history has brought reason, logic, and the life of the mind. It has ushered that in, not delayed it, and not stumped that growth. But human freedom, and, and it, what it led to is human freedom, liberty, and value. But oftentimes, what, what's happened? Throughout our society, what have we heard? Maybe it be uh, in, in, in certain views of history by certain groups. We've heard and we've been fed this myth that progress in art, science, and tech comes from the rejection of Christianity. But we've seen throughout history nothing can be further from the truth. One great, uh, one great thinker, one great scholar, Rodney Stark, says this, significant progress, unlike what we've been heard in the supposed dark ages, we know there are obviously certain things of the dark ages that were definitely dark, but there was great progress made in the fields uh, directly attributed to the Bible in the fields of theology, Christian scholarship, science, directly related to the opening of the mind that we see by the Christian worldview. Not only that, not only does it, ex- does it reveal and expose darkness, but it also speaks greatly to human value. Here is where we really drill down on the biblical worldview, the biblical worldview as opposed to the worldviews of society. Human value is directly attributable throughout history to the biblical worldview. Greek and Roman culture, in fact, the contemporary of the rise of Christianity, rarely emphasized personal human value. Rarely did. And that's why you see slavery in its day. In fact, we know when we fast forward many, many centuries later, William Wilberforce, who was instrumental, he and those that followed him were instrumental in the eradication of slavery within Great Britain. They worked hard because of their biblical worldview of humanity, biblical worldview of humanity to eradicate slavery. And in fact, in medieval Europe, we see that one of the direct and probably the greatest turn in the eradication of slavery in medieval Europe was when sacraments of the church were extended to slaves. And it began to, what it, what, it, what it did is it began to say in a very powerful way that these are people, these are people, human value, human value. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, he says, describing that second coming, describing that second coming of Jesus Christ and he says, when if we do, before the return of Jesus Christ, we are walking by the torchlight of Scripture, the torchlight of the biblical worldview so that we will not stumble in darkness. You know, uh, many news stations and many newspapers, but I especially think of news stations, their taglines when they're coming back from commercials say something like, your source 
for news, your source for this, your source for the events of the day. But when we think about worldview, what is our source for how we view the issues of the day? Is our source for how we view uh, the, the issue of abortion, the issue of immigration, race relations, sexuality, possessions, entertainment? Is our source for that just whatever the latest thought is of culture and society, whatever the latest quote-unquote expert says or the latest book says or the latest article or the latest social media post? Is that our source for truth or is our source for truth the unchanging, inerrant word of God? So eyewitnesses of his majesty, number one. Number two, we see that specific focus in verse 19 on worldview as we see that the Bible is a light shining in, dark, in a dark place. And number three, we see that it is not, again, of just some private interpretation, as he will say, but they are moved by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 20 says this, knowing first that no prophecy of Scripture, no giving of Scripture came from any private interpretation. So some might say, well, that's just a, just a person that wrote that. Well, we believe what, what God says for himself in his word is that it is not of private interpretation, but they were given the word of God through the Holy Spirit. For the prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So again, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. That word for interpretation means to loose or untie or release. And the false teachers of Paul's day there in in their society were very quick to just kind of release and untie and just speak freely of their own quote-unquote truth, their own beliefs. They'd say, hey, we've got the latest thing. We've got the newest thing. This is the latest belief. And they'd go to the city square and they would stand on a stump and they would say, this is the, the latest thing, the latest philosophy that you need to follow. Now, we don't stand up on a stump today. We don't actually go to the city square, but we go to the city square of just society and media and whatever else and, and, and give these loosing or untying of private interpretations. But Peter says that's not what's happening at all. But he's saying the prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God, they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Carried along is what it says. Moved there speaks of being carried along like the wind. And as many of you know, pneuma, the word translated spirit in the Bible, and in certain contexts, of course, speaking of the Holy Spirit, is also a word for wind. So this is a purposeful, under the the great glorious teaching of God, this is a purposeful double entendre, meaning the Holy Spirit was the wind that carried them along. And so when you relate this to an illustration of different ships sailing upon a lake mid-afternoon, there might be a ship that's red, there might be a ship that's small, there might be a ship that's large, this one might have four sails, this one might have two or whatever else, many different shapes and sizes, unique in all of their makeup and their purposes, yet they're carried along by the exact same wind. And in the same way, the writers of Scripture were unique. They might have had unique styles, unique experiences, personalities, teachings, Uh, experiences of their day, but they were all carried along by the same Holy Spirit and came to the exact same truth. Because what did they do? They raised their sails of willingness. Those prophets, the holy men of which God spoke through, they raised their sails of willingness and allowed the Holy Spirit to carry them along as they wrote the truth. 
So here's the thing. We return right to where we started here, that quote of David Noble. He says again, we study Scripture because it tells the truth about God. It tells us the truth about God, the world, and man's relationship to God in the world. Again, we study Scripture because it tells the truth about God, the world, and man's relationship to God in the world. When we think about that, a great encapsulation of exactly what God claims for the Bible itself, will we be like those great prophets of old and the writers of Scripture? They raise their cell of willingness so that the Holy Spirit might carry them along as they write Scripture. What about us? We raise our sail of willingness that we might be carried along by the truth of God's word and his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Well, God, as we continue to dig in over the course of these next several weeks, looking at specific issues of worldview and culture, may we have this issue settled in our mind that we do not look for any other source of truth other than your word. God, your word stands up to examination. If there's anyone here today that is struggling with belief in you and belief in your word. God, may let them look, let them dig, let them read in God's word and because we know it will stand up to scrutiny. God, we pray for anyone in the room today that um, may want greater, uh, more information about something they heard today. More information about what the Bible says about this or what, uh, information about the Bible itself. God, would they be willing to contact me or someone else they know and trust in this room as a believer in this room today? But God, on the central message of Scripture, the central message of the worldview of Scripture, that the world that we live in, you created it, but yet it fell into sin. Lord, that that's not where the story ends, but you have redeemed us through through Jesus Christ, and one day it will be made new. God, may today be the day that they would surrender their life unto this truth and not just to an idea, but to a person, the person of Jesus Christ. In his name we do pray, amen. See, folks, we're gonna have a chance for you to respond in whatever way the Lord may be leading you to here in just a few moments. But really, as I mentioned just a moment ago in the midst of my prayer, the centrality of the biblical worldview is this, is that the world in which we live was created by God. It's not here by chance. And we are the crown jewel of its creation. However, we have fallen into sin and we've been separated from God. That's pretty bad news. That doesn't sound like very good news at all, except the good news of this, that God in his justice didn't just sort of remove sin and just kind of forget about it. He couldn't do that as a holy God. And he knew we could not pay, we could not pay the penalty of our own sin. So what did he do? He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to this world to die on the cross for our sins. He rose again, proving exactly who he said he was, that he might redeem us. He might redeem us and buy us back from that slave market of sin. He says that one day he will return and restore all things, restore all things and restore them good as new. Now here's the thing. That is a great message of the gospel. But it is an idea that is not just an idea of an ethereal idea out there just to think about. It is, a, it is the greatest truth of the world that also comes with the greatest choice. It is the choice for each individual to make that decision of whether they're going to surrender their life and to the Lord Jesus Christ, be forgiven and cleansed and be born again. So what about you? Have you made that decision to follow Jesus Christ? If you haven't, again, in just a few moments, we're going to sing, we're going to stand, sing, and I'll be at the back. And I'll be back there for you to come and speak to me about giving your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Maybe you're back, maybe you're out there today and you just need prayer. You just say, Pastor, there's something I desperately need you to pray about with me. There's something I need answers of what God says in his word and I need to know how to deal with this particular issue in my life. I'll be back there. I'd love to pray with you. But again, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, do not let another day go by. As we stand and we sing, you respond.